Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of March 24th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. We invite you to open up your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We finish up this chapter this morning. Several years ago, Angela and I made, uh, on our, actually it's been more than several years, we went on our honeymoon to Cancun, Mexico. If you've had a chance to travel to other parts of the world, you find out if you want to do a little shopping, if you found a, a non-American mall, you get to negotiate the price of whatever it is you want to buy. Y'all had that experience of going across to other parts of the country or other parts of the world and haggling just a little bit? So we get to haggle, and I, uh, we were going to, I think we had found a, a blanket we were going to, a Mexican blanket we were going to, to purchase. And so I thought I would try my hand at haggling. Apparently I was not as skilled at it because it wasn't necessarily that I didn't get the deal we wanted, but I made the guy mad. And I'm being really, really mad. And I, I don't know Spanish that well. I do know there's some words I don't want to repeat, even in Spanish. And we didn't get the blanket from there because he just, apparently I really lowballed the offer. I guess I must have disrespected him. I don't know what it was. But what he was asking, I didn't think the blanket was worth. You know, there are times in this life, whether it's a blanket or a car or a house or just whatever it might be, that you have a cost in front of you and you decide, well, that either is or it isn't worth the cost. As we come to our passage this morning, Jesus wants us to know up front, to be my disciple, here is the cost. And let me share with you this morning, the cost of following Christ is steep. Yes, there is a sense we talk about it is easy to come to faith. It's easy in that sense. There's not a a laundry list of to-do items before you can come to faith in Christ. That's true. But the cost is nonetheless steep. And the question might be this morning, is it worth it? Well, let's look at this. Mark chapter 8. I want to begin reading, actually we're going to read what we, told, what we saw last week, so I'm going to be reading in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage this morning, and Lord, the words are are stark, They're, 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 they're startling even. I pray that you would give us 
an understanding of the cost of discipleship and of the blessing of discipleship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we talked that this passage right here in Mark chapter 8 is a turning point in the gospel. It's a turning point in the, in the ministry of Jesus on earth. It's a turning point for the disciples. Up to this time, Jesus has been traveling through most of what we call Galilee, the northern part of Israel, and even to some of the Gentile areas. And he has been healing. He has been, he has been doing miracles. He's done some pretty astounding things. He's taught. He, he's taught all these things about the kingdom of God and what it means to repent. And we've, we've seen this over and over and over again. There's been these power demonstrations. But up to this point, that's pretty much all there has been. It's, it's been the healing of the blind and the healing of the lame. It's been him sharing the scriptures and calling people to repentance that the kingdom of God is near. We've seen Jesus do this in various shapes and forms and, and fashion. But at this point, things take a turn. And it's at this point that Jesus, in a, in a private conversation with the twelve, tells them very bluntly and plainly, okay, now, here's what's about to happen. Because in the coming months, Jesus begins to make his way from the northern part of the Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem, where he will be crucified. And so he wants to prepare his disciples. And so he has established who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. But as we saw last week, now he has to redefine for them what the Messiah means. And he says, I'm going to die. And that was a startling thing for the disciples to hear, that to, 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 to be God's anointed one meant death and suffering. And they, they had a hard time understanding that. But he tells them very plainly who he is and what he is there to do. But if that wasn't enough, he tells them, if you're going to hang out with me, if you're going to truly come and follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, if you want that title, here is what that means. It's not going to be just me who goes and dies. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. We, we spoke even last week of, of the shadow. There is the shadow looming over Jesus at this point. It's very obvious. It's, it's the shadow of the cross. And everything that takes place, every decision he makes, everything he does from this point forward, if it hadn't already been, is overshadowed with that vision of the cross in the background. We have some acquaintances of ours from a previous church who now live in Central America, and they live within the shadow, if you will, of a volcano. Now, we have seen on the news, you see from time to time, what a volcano can do. And it's a pretty scary thing, and I'm not sure it would be my first choice to camp out in the shadow of a volcano. Why would people live near a volcano? Well, of course, there are all kinds of reasons why some people do. The soil is particularly rich and good for growing things in a, in, a, in a volcanic area. It's often in places of great beauty and great resources. The minerals are rich. It, it's a, it can be a, a, a very uh, incredible place to live. Now, of course, living in the shadow of a volcano means not only great soil for growing crops and great beauty, it also means <laughs> great danger. In fact, for those who would live in the shadow of a volcano, that volcano, in all its richness and it's all its danger overshadows everything. Your life is shadowed always by the benefits and by the curses 
of living in that, that, that area of the volcano. It shapes everything you do. It shapes your decisions. It shapes your careers. It shapes your, your food. It, that, that volcano shapes everything. In a very similar way this morning, the shadow of the cross changes everything. And for those, including Christ and including those who would come after him, if we want to live near Christ, if we want to be his disciple, if we want to live in the shadow of the cross, we must understand that the cross will shape our lives in every way. It will shape every decision. It will shape our careers. It will shape our language. It will shape the desires of our heart. It will shape everything to live in the shadow of the cross. So Jesus is trying to illustrate this for them. He wants them to understand. So he's been very plain. This is who I am. This is what is going to happen. Peter rebukes them, and Jesus tells him that that rebuke, that Peter's decision to, to say, no, you will not die. Jesus calls that attitude satanic. He says, Peter, your heart is on the things not of God. That's Jesus' definition of satanic, by the way. And so he expands the conversation to those around him. He brings a crowd in, and he says this, if, you, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The call Jesus issues to them and issues to us this morning is, first of all, to deny yourself. Now, what does that mean, to deny yourself? I want, I want to share with you a verse that we have uh, a couple different places. It's, it's on our material when we publish here as a church. You see it on our letterhead, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. It's a a theme verse, if you will, for us here at First Baptist. It says this, He died for all, that's Jesus, He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means that you no longer live for yourself. It means that you are willing to actually, or you actually do, live on behalf of, of someone else. And of course, for us this morning, that someone else is Christ. It means that the center of your life, the gravity that shapes your life, the shadow that shapes your life, is not your own. It means that you say no to yourself so that you can, in fact, turn around and say yes to God. How often is it that when confronted with the truth of Scripture, we have a hard time responding to it because we're focused upon what that might mean for us. That might be hard. I don't know if I like that. I can't count the number of times, not only have I heard it through my life, but I've even said it to myself in my own mind. I don't like that verse. That's hard. I don't know if I want to agree to that. That might mean something for me I don't really want. I I may have used this illustration before. I just use it because it's, it's, it's a part comical, but it's also part tragic. A church I was in many, many years ago, we had a lady in our church, and she talked about how she, in some ways, was afraid to true, truly commit her life or surrender her life to say yes to God because she was afraid that means that he would call her to Africa. And she was scared to fly. And she would say it kind of jokingly, but you kind of knew there was some truth to it. And, and she was hesitant to really fully commit herself to do whatever God wanted her to do because it might mean doing something that was scary. Well, guess what? Yeah. In fact, so scary, going to Africa is not even remotely near the scariest thing it might mean. Jesus tells the guys in front of him that it might mean the cross. 
He says, deny yourself. Take yourself out of the equation. You yourself are no longer part of, this, of the decision-making. When, you when you're composing a list of, of positive and negatives, you're trying to figure out what to do, take yourself and your dreams and your aspirations and all those things out of the equation. Now you, that's, that's kind of hard. Yeah, it's even harder than you think. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly hard. We live in a time where even those who profess the name of Christ are telling you that you're the center of things. We have those who in the name of Christ, you can pick up a book, you can hear them, you can hear a broadcast. We have those who are telling you that what God really wants is for you to have all your dreams come true. That you're the center of God's aspirations. And the thing is, that's a lie. In fact, it's the exact opposite. God tells us, stop thinking about yourself. <laughs> Get your minds off of yourself and start thinking about another. So to deny yourself means to actually stop putting yourself in the front. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. There's your mindset. Now, does this mean that tomorrow you should resign your job and go serve in Africa? <laughs> no, not necessarily. But it must mean that if God says do that, you say okay. It means that you're willing to do whatever it is the king says to do. It means that there are no reasons you will give to ignore God's leadership in your life. It means that you yourself are not the compelling reason to make any decision one way or the other. It means that your hopes, your, your dreams, your desires, all those things. Now, I'm not saying those are good or bad. I'm saying they're not the basis upon which you live. The shadow looming over your life, the decision-making thing in your life, is not your own dreams or even your own breath. It is the cross of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says, deny yourself. Now that would be hard enough. But he takes it a step further. He says, you want to know what denying yourself could ultimately look like? He says, take up your cross. Now this is a phrase we hear from time to time, and you might even hear someone say, if they're going through a particularly difficult time, well, we all have our crosses to bear. Right? You've heard that phrase. We all have our burdens to bear. We all have our crosses to bear. This is not some Hebrew phrase, or this is not some ancient idiom, meaning that, well, it's going to be tough. It means what it looks like it means. If you're Peter and you hear, take up your cross, there's only one thing that pops into your mind. Horrific death. It doesn't mean things are going to be hard. It doesn't mean things are going to be difficult. It doesn't mean you're going to have to sacrifice. It doesn't mean that you're going to have to go through a dark period of your life. Taking up the cross means one thing and one thing only to everyone around him. It means death. Now, we're not used to thinking in terms of being a Christian leading to death. But understand, especially as those 12... 11 of, uh, 10 of those 12 anyway, 11 of the 12 will, will die violent deaths. 10 of the 12 will die deaths because of their association with Christ. So I understand that for those who were in Jesus' immediate vicinity, 
He said, take up your cross. Some of them literally did take up the cross. They literally did die. Whether they died by the cross or by some other means. It's not just an image. It's not just a phrase. It's not spiritualized away. It doesn't mean it's going to be hard. It doesn't mean that you lay down your dreams and your life's aspirations. It means that you will, in fact, give up that which you hold most dear, your breath and your existence. That's what it means. It's the picture of a man carrying the beam of his own instrument of death. He was carrying the beam of his own cross to his execution. That's the picture. And Jesus says, if you want to come after me, this is where I'm heading. And if I'm heading this way, and I will die this way, you need to be ready to do the exact same thing. And if you aren't, you cannot come after me. Now that's hard. If I was to ask advice from any number of PR people or marketing people or advertising people, if I was to go to a church growth handbook and say, how can I get a really big church? It will not say, tell everyone who says that you have to die or be And yet, that's exactly what Jesus just said. He said, you want to come after me? Forget this stuff about being comfortable. Forget this stuff about your dreams and aspirations coming true. Forget this idea of being prosperous. If you want to come after me, here's the cost. Stop thinking about yourself and be willing to die. Period. Literally die. That's the cost. Now, the truth is, again, for most of us, we're not really confronted with this idea that Christianity will result in our death. But for those in this era, it did. For many of our brothers and sisters of Christ this morning, it does. If you've never visited the website, I would encourage you to look at something called Voice of the Martyrs. They publish some stuff out, and you will see statistics that even, even today, People are dying for their faith. I think it's just been the last week or so, more than 200 Christians in Nigeria have been executed for their faith. People are dying around the world. Jesus says, this is the way it will be. Now, understand this. The cross isn't just death. The cross is a certain type of death. If you're in the ancient Roman world, they didn't didn't crucify Romans. You had to be a non-citizen. You had to be someone who wasn't from Rome, or you had to be a non-Roman to be crucified. So in other words, the Romans only did, they didn't, they didn't crucify their own people, they only crucified the outsiders. So the first thing about being crucified is this, you're acknowledging that you're an outsider. You're not a citizen of the world, so to speak. You couldn't be a citizen of Rome and be crucified. And so if we're going to take up our cross, that means one thing we have to be willing to do is look at the world around us and acknowledge that we aren't one of them and to be okay with that. We're, you and I, as believers of Christ, We are on the outside looking in of this world. And we need to stop trying to do it the other way around. You and I need to stop looking at the rest of the world and saying we want to be like them. We should be honest with the idea that we are not like them. We are not like this world, and we are not supposed to be like this world. In fact, we are outsiders. We read Hebrews chapter 11 a while ago, talking about all these great men and women of the faith. And earlier in that chapter, it talked about how Abraham acknowledged that he was a foreigner. He was an alien. He was an outsider as he obeyed and followed where God called him to live. That's you and I. We are not 
you and I, home to this world. We are foreigners. We are aliens. We are outsiders. So to be willing to take up the cross means I have to understand, first of all, I am an outsider. And being secondly, that being an outsider, I will be looked upon as a criminal. That what I value, that what I hold most precious, what I hold most dear, will not be what they hold dear. In fact, they will look at me as they looked at Christ and say, you're something fundamentally wrong with what you believe. Now, we're not, again, not used to necessarily that in this country, even though we are moving in that direction right now. There have been bills introduced in the federal Congress in the last month that would make it illegal to hold a biblical view of homosexuality. Not just inconvenient, to make it illegal. That's the world saying to us, what you value is now criminal. Now, that's just one, that's just one example. The truth is, a biblical Christian is now already looked upon this world by this world, not only as an outsider, but as somebody who is fundamentally wrong. So you want to come after Christ. Understand that means denying yourself. It also means being willing to say that you're an outsider and that you will be okay with the world thinking that you are fundamentally wrong to the point that they will not just execute you. The cross was not simply a means of just death. It, obviously, it accomplished that. It did kill you. But it wasn't just a matter of killing you. The cross was a, a way of executing you that wouldn't just take your life, but it would humiliate you in the process. Now, we know all the movies, and we, we know that the guys who are crucified, have a, they have minimal clothing on. But it wasn't unusual for them to be crucified naked. So what happens is you are stripped down. You are beaten. You are scourged. You are nailed to the cross. And you're hung up for the world to see you and all your weakness. And as you slowly die. And you're done in a public way. Generally crosses were put up on the roads in and out of a community or in and out of a city so the Romans could demonstrate to all the world this is what happens when you cross us. So it wasn't just the idea of death. They wanted to humiliate, embarrass, and shame you and to make of you an example as they mocked you and watched you slowly die over generally a period of days. That's how crucifixion normally worked. And so every one of these guys, Jesus himself included, every one of these guys, every one of these people who were around Jesus when he says this, they know, take up your cross, they have seen the crucifixions. They have walked in and out of Jerusalem. They have walked in and out of other communities and cities in, the, in that area of the world. And they have seen crosses lined up. They knew exactly what that meant. And it meant nothing else for them other than excruciatingly shameful death. So Jesus says, you want to come follow me? It means that you're willing to be an outsider. It means that you're willing to be considered wrong by the world. And it means that you will let them mock, humiliate, and embarrass as they kill you. Not to mention just the fact that it's excruciatingly painful. Jesus is trying to drum out of these guys this idea that to be godly, to be righteous, to be holy before God means that you get everything you want. He's telling them the exact opposite, in fact. He says, 
to follow me, to be godly, to be holy, to be righteous in God's eyes, may well mean the exact opposite of what you think it means. It might mean this world rejects you and kills you. Philippians chapter 3, this is one of those passages that I end up going back to over and over again. I try, sometimes I think I go back to it too much. I go, I'll try to use something else, but I just keep going back to it. Philippians chapter 3, Paul is sharing a little bit of his own personal testimony. And he talks about, earlier in the chapter, all of these things he's accomplished, all these things he's done, all this status he's acquired, all this reputation he had. And Paul was a Pharisee's Pharisee. He was a Jew's Jew. He was on top of the world. He had it made. He had the education. He had the background. He had the heredity. His parents didn't have to buy his way into college. You've seen that story recently. He was, that, he was the guy that earned it. And he says this in Philippians chapter 3. They counted all as loss. Verse 8. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul says, everything I had, everything I worked for, everything I was trying to attain, I counted as lost. He actually counts it as the stuff you throw in the trash that starts to smell. You want it out of the house. That's the word. All I achieved, all my dreams, all I looked for, all the stuff I wanted to get is the garbage I threw out of the house because it stinks in, in light of knowing Christ. You would ask Paul the question, you have lost everything, Paul, for the sake of knowing and coming after Christ. Paul, is it worth it? And Paul would say, it's not even a question. Yes. It's worth it. So as we look at these two, we look at the idea of self-denial. We look at the cross. I'm dying to my old self. I'm dying to me so that my new self will gain eternal life. He says, finally, follow me. I just will say this. This all is describing what it means to follow him, but I'll just say this. Y'all ever remember playing follow the leader when you were a kid? Oh, come on, right? Y'all remember playing follow the leader, right? Some of y'all played it. How do you play follow the leader? Well, someone's in front. Everyone else stands behind them and, and does like whatever they do, right? They jump over a bench. Everybody else jumps over a bench. If they skip, everyone skips. If they walk into a wall, everybody walks into a wall. Well, whatever it might be, it's follow the leader. Now, if you're back here, what's your job? The first thing you do is you have to watch them, right? If you aren't watching them, are you going to win the game? No. Follow the leader means... I have to watch them and do what they said. If I'm going to follow Christ, what he's telling us this, I have to watch him. I have to look at him. I have to have my gaze fixed upon him. I can't be looking to the left or the right. I have to be watching him. So if I'm going to watch him, if I'm going to come after him, I have to deny myself. My attention is no longer on me. I have to be willing to die, literally, physically die. And no matter what else happens, I am watching him. That's it in a nutshell. You want to come up to Christ? That is the cost. Now, he, he, turns, into a, he turns into some verses here that actually have some financial words to it. For those of you who like money, those of you who want to make a profit, those of you who talk about investing, 
he makes this comment in the next few verses. It, it kind of counters what we think we would do, but he says this. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. So it will be like this. And those are, those are financial words. So if you want to save money, give it away. If you want to accumulate more, he says, get rid of everything you got. That's, now, that does not make any sense, does it? And yet that's exactly what he's saying. He says if your life is a financial transaction, if you're thinking about your life in business terms, your soul in business terms, the only way for you to save your life is to lose it. It's to do exactly what we've talked about. To cast it aside and to live for another. Now, that doesn't make logical sense to us, perhaps. But Jesus says this, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, I will make this one little caveat here. He does say here, whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel. So understand, there's a very specific context here. You can't go out there and be a jerk. <laughs> well, I'm suffering for God because I'm, you know. No, that's not what he's talking about. If you have, he says, suffered and lose your life for my sake and the sake of the gospel, then you will preserve your life. You have to be willing to die throw it away in that sense. And maybe you're thinking, I've got nothing to give God. I've got no talents. I've got no dreams. I'm just, there's nothing special about me. I've got nothing. I've got no talents, no time. Nobody thinks about me. I am, maybe you said this morning, I am emotionally, I am physically, spiritually, I'm spent. I've got nothing. I couldn't bear up my own cross. You may remember that as we get towards Easter, all the images of Christ, and you may remember the Bible describing Christ carrying His cross, that He was so weak that He, at several times, literally falls down under the weight of the beam that He's carrying. And maybe you would say to yourself, say to me this morning, that's who I am. I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to bring. I've got nothing to crucify. I've got nothing to die. I'm, I'm spent. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. You know, if you've got nothing... What's keeping you from death? God doesn't say to us, give me all you have. He says, give me yourself. If you are breathing this morning, He wants your breath. If you are moving this morning, He wants your movement. If you, want to see, if you can see this morning, He wants your vision. If, he wants, if, if you can speak, He wants your speech. If you can hear, He wants your hearing. He wants everything. For the sake of the gospel. You know, there's a a classic song. If I asked you to sing the words, there ain't no mountain high enough. How many of y'all could do that? I'm not going to sing it right now. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you, babe. Oh no, darling, no wind, no rain, or winters can stop, can cold, can stop me, baby, because you are my goal. We sing songs like that. There's all kinds of songs like that, isn't there? 
Honey, there's nothing that will keep me from you. What we just said to whoever we're singing that to is, you're worth the cost. If we can sing songs like that to another person, when we come to our Lord, who gave His life for us, how can we sing anything less? Is the cost worth it? When you're talking to a young person who's in high school or college and you're asking them to look at how they're going to spend the next decades of their life if God grants them that, and you're telling them whatever career you're in, whatever job you have, wherever you go to school, whatever it is you do, live it in the shadow of the cross and give it all to Him and be willing to die for Him. That's actually your real life's call. And it's worth it. The answer is yes. Whether you're 17 or, or 87, the next day, is it worth it to give all you have to Christ to do this? And the answer is yes. I mean, I will say this the worst thing you can do is to try to do it in the middle. It's a miserable existence to sort of try to kind of be okay, sort of okay with God. It's, it's the worst thing in the world to sort of, to sort of kind of try to be middle of the road with God. Sort, sort of kind of try to be active, but you, know, you still want to do your own thing over here. The Bible calls it a double-minded individual. It's, it's actually it's a, it's a, it's a horrific way to live because you've abandoned the, the power of a life with Christ while trying to keep up an image of that. It, it's, it's a horrible way to exist. Jesus says this, there's no in-between. You don't sort of get crucified. You don't sort of die. You don't kind of do those things. You deny yourself. You take up a life that will lead, perhaps, to a world that will reject you and shame you and criminalize you embarrass you and kill you. But you look at no one else except Him. That's the cost. And that's the life. And we do it knowing as hard and as difficult as we think that is, and it's harder and more difficult than you even think. That is the cost for salvation of your soul. What's the cost-benefit analysis? Is that you give up that 20, 40, 50, 60, 70 years for eternity. We all would agree, hey, if I asked you, would you put up with, with one month of misery if he had 50 years of paradise following that? Well, yeah, I'll do that. What about 70 or 80 years for billions of years? 
Is that worth the cost? Yes.